Hello, I'm Brett Dillon and this is The Movie Chronicles. This episode finds us in Nazi Germany for the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Leni Reifenstahl, at Adolf Hitler's request, made a documentary of the event. This epic two-part documentary focuses on the poetry of bodies in motion more than a winners and losers narrative. I suspect because Hitler's idea of Aryan superiority was blown apart by these games. I'll go into the visuals when I discuss the individual films. For the moment, I'll highlight the unifying element, the music. This I doubt I can praise too highly. It perfectly expresses the visual experience in a musical form. The first film to be released was Olympia One, Tale Fest de Volca, Festival of Nations. Director, script, editor and actor, Lenny Reifenstahl. Director of Photography, there are 47 directors of photography. The ones I will be mentioning are Hans Ertel, Walter Frentz, Hans Karl Goldschuk, and Richard Grosschop. Music, Herbert Wendt and Walter Gronoste. Actors, David Olbritton, Avo Askala, Jack Beresford, Erwin Blask, Sulo Barland, Ibolia Kashak, Glenn Cunningham, Joseph Goebbels, Hermann Goring, Rudolf Hess, Adolf Hitler, Jack Lovelock, Shuhei Nishida, and Jesse Owens. Surprisingly, at least to me, we open on a montage that includes extensive model work, again, at least to my eyes. There may have been some location footage included, I couldn't be sure. This portrays an ancient Greece fallen into ruins, its ideals broken. What I suspect are the location shots show the Acropolis in Greece, a pre-Nazi invasion, which brings us to view statues which then come alive. We get the discus, shot put and javelin portrayed with homoerotic imagery. The woman's sport is presented as an interpretive dance. The next section follows the course of the Olympic flame from Greece. This is actual location footage. The flame travels across the seas, represented by a runner skipping across the waves. The runner moves through crowds lining the streets, through East Europe, represented by models, and into Germany. Ringing bells are superimposed over the shot of the runner entering the stadium. Historically, this was the site of the Hitler Jungen's last stand. This is less than a decade in the future, but the modern viewer can't watch this film without feeling the tragedy of history to come. Flags are raised on flagpoles, and the competitors enter the stadium. The film does concentrate on those fascist salutes, which does make one want to give a single finger salute to the screen. The Olympic flame arrives to the sound of church bells, linking to the imagery of the previous sequence. The Olympic torch is lit to the background of a setting sun. This is both visually impressive and a foreshadowing of the fascist future. I wouldn't put it past Lenny to sneak this imagery in, knowing the censors would never pick up on the critique of the regime. 
The games are afoot. The men's and women's events are given equal coverage. If you're wondering why much of this film is shot like a silent film, the answer is very simple. By 1936, only four countries were completely wired up to handle sound pictures. They were the USA, the UK, Australia, and New Zealand. With the exception of the US, these were all countries resistant to fascist ideology. We are shown the discus, the javelin, hurdles, hammer throwing, which includes the first use of slow-mo in the film, sprints, high jump, shot put, triple jump, and long jump. It's a pity the film wasn't shot in colour. I imagine this was due to the cost. The strength of the film is in the editing, and the rhythm between the events and the crowd reaction shots, and these crowd shots do have some historical interest. This brief pause serves as a setup for the first historically important event shown in the film, the 1500 metre race. You will notice how, on the soundtrack, every runner, except Jack Lovelock, is assigned a country of origin. This is a bit of prefiguring of the results, but also indicates two years after the event how much Jack's win humiliated Nazi ideology. New Zealanders were, in Hitler's words, a mongrel race. General Rommel was later to say to Hitler, Give me a battalion of New Zealanders and I will give you the world. You will notice the silver fern is missing from his kit and, when he mounts the winner's podium, God Save the King is played rather than God Defend New Zealand. Or, as we Kiwis say, God Defend New Zealand because no other bugger will. Almost the entire race is shown, and this lets us see how Lovelock surgically defeats all his opponents. It's a lesson in competitive psychology. I also suspect this was made an extended sequence as a nose-pull of the Nazis. They can't deny it happened, nor deny that the 1500 metre race is not one of the premier events of the Olympics, and therefore warranted an extended treatment. The high jump is followed by the hurdles. The javelin is followed by the 10,000 metre race. This features my favourite shot of Hitler as he runs his hands over his knees and rocks back and forth in his excitement. As propaganda, this connects Hitler to the other shots of the crowd and suggests he is a man of the people. The pole vault features the first nighttime shots which must have been a real horror for the production, given the lighting requirements for black-and-white film from this era. The relay race is followed by the marathon, which returns us to the homoerotic imagery from the start of the film. We conclude on the closing ceremony. One could wish that other athletic events were photographed with even half the artistry this film displays. We get the point-of-view shots, which suggests some post-event staging, but which add to the drama of the event, and a camera which focuses on the movement of muscles over the skeletal mass rather than leading us into a false narrative of a winner-loser dichotomy. The visual theme is how the Olympics bring the countries of the world together. Director Lenny Reifenstahl was born on August the 22nd, 1902 in Berlin, Germany, and she died in 2003. 
Lenny first appeared on stage because she wanted to find out what it would be like to be a dancer. The stage work came to the attention of director Arnold Frank, who cast her in a series of mountain films. I guess he was just a guy who loved mountain woman. He mentored her as Lenny developed her skills as a director. Her later life became complicated when she was considered an integral part of the Nazi propaganda effort. She was later to say, If I had really been a Nazi, I would have killed myself like Eva Braun. I am not an idiot. I have never said that Hitler was handsome and intelligent. Director of photography Hans Ertl was born on February 21, 1908 in Munich, Germany, and he died in 2000. Hans was known as Rommel's cameraman, and General Rommel awarded him an Iron Cross for his recording of the Desert Campaign. He is now best remembered as the father of Monica Ertl, the communist guerrilla who assassinated Roberto Quintanilla Pereira, the man who chopped the hands off of Che Guevara. The life of Hans is obscure at best and had two strings we know about. He first came to fame as a mountaineer. His achievements include 1930, first ascent of the Konigspritz North Face, 1931, first ascent of the Ortler North Face, 1934, first ascent of Sia Kangri, 1950, first solo climb of Ilamani South, first ascent of Ilamani North, 1953, photographer of the German-Austrian Nangaparbat expedition. Hans's film work began in 1932 as assistant to Arnold Frank, which is where he probably first met Leni Reifenstahl, described as the love of his life. He also, about this time, became friendly with Klaus Barbie, also known as the Butcher of Leon, for his World War II activities. Klaus escaped to Bolivia, where he taught the authorities how to suppress rebellion via torture. In the early part of his film career, Hans invented an underwater camera and a ski-mountable camera. Both were to revolutionize film photography. Hans's daughter Beatrice denied her father was a Nazi and that he served in the army only as an obligation. I was only following orders was a common theme during the Nuremberg trials after the war, and that he did what he could to survive. Hans was arrested by the Allies and banned from working professionally in Germany. He fled first to Chile, then Bolivia. There he retired to a farm. Director of photography Walter Frentz was born on August 21, 1907, in Heilbronn, Germany, and he died in 2004. Walter was known as the Führer's Cameraman. His film career began in 1933 with Leni Reifenstahl's first propaganda film, The Sig das Glaubspens, a film thought lost until the 1990s. He met Leni through his school friend Albert Speer, Hitler's architect. In 1938, Walter joined the Luftwaffe. As a cameraman, he recorded Hitler's entry into Austria and then the victory parade in Warsaw after the Nazis invaded Poland. This allowed him into the Nazi inner circle. He recorded many of the regime's victories and its many war crimes. In 1945, he took the last photographs that show Hitler still alive. Walter fled the fall of Berlin and was arrested by Nazi SS officers in Bavaria, 
who confiscated part of his photo archive. I'm guessing the part that detailed Nazi atrocities. Although never a member of the Nazi party, he was held at the Hamelberg prison camp by the Allies for several months. Director of photography Hans Karl Gottschalk was born on November 22, 1891 in Cologne, Germany, and he died in 1941. Hans was an old master of the film world by 1936. He made his first film in 1918 and was unable to keep in steady employment until this, his final film. It seems he got caught up in Nazi ideology because he drowned on the battleship Bismarck. Director of photography Richard Groschop was born on February 19, 1906 in Kajalida, Germany, and he died in 1996. Richard shot his first film in 1932 and graduated to directing also in 1932. During the war, he made educational documentaries for the German Navy. In 1946, Richard joined DEFA Studio in East Germany to make Stachelteer short satiric swipes at party control. In propaganda terms, these were designed to diffuse tensions by pretending they were criticisms. If someone is saying what you're thinking, then you assume they will be the ones to do something about it. Actor Jack Lovelock was born on January 5, 1910, in Cushington, New Zealand, and he died in 1949. At the 1936 Berlin Olympics, Jack became the world record holder for the 1500-meter race. This was New Zealand's first gold medal at any Olympic Games. In 1929, Jack went to the University of Otago to study medicine. He won a Rhodes Scholarship in 1931. Jack then left for England to study at Exeter College, Oxford from 1931 to 34. Jack might have done better at university had it not been for his punishing athletics schedule. He broke the British record for running the mile in 1932, competed in the 1932 Olympic Games, and set a world record for the mile in 1933. He then went on to win gold at the 1934 Empire Games. Jack graduated with a BA in Physiology in 1934. Balancing the clinical demands of his medical training at St. Mary's Hospital in London against his athletic training proved difficult. Jack wrote, Big competitive sport has become such a specialized game that it is almost a full-time job, and it is certainly incompatible with medical work. From 1933 onwards, Jack was having problems with his knees. In 1940 and 1941, he had a series of head injuries which led to dizziness, and eyesight problems. Things now become a little tenuous. What we know is that on December the 28th, 1949, Jack went to work in Manhattan, New York, USA, at a hospital for special surgery where he worked in rehabilitative medicine. He never reached work but fell beneath the train. This is usually ascribed to his injuries although it later developed into an urban legend that it was suicide due to depression around his injuries. Olympia II Tale, Fest de Schonheit Festival of Beauty Director, Script and Editor, Lenny Reifenstahl Director of Photography, 
There are 23 directors of photography. The ones I will mention are Willy Heimster, Ernst Kunstmann and Gustav Lanschner. Editor, Erna Peters. Music, Herbert Wendt and Walter Granoste. Actors, Shago Arai, Jack Beresford, Rolf Bersenyi, Frank Kissick, William Hinter, Dan Oden, Conrad Frey, Tetsuo Hamuro, Adolf Hitler, Alwish Hudik, Adolf Kaifer, Masaji Kiyakawa, Wugen Mack, Willy Rogerberg, Alexandra Stalvala, Rolf Wenick, and Paul Lavin. Festival of Beauty, like the previous film, begins with a prologue. First, we are introduced to the German countryside, which develops into a water theme from lakes to a stream. We follow athletes on a training run through the fog and mist of an early morning and then go into a steam room. A massage completes this experience, developing the homoerotic imagery of the previous film with more explicit nudity. This sequence wraps up with a training montage that guides us into the competitive events. The games begin with gymnastics, utilizing slow-mo. The rings, with the camera under the position of the competitor. The parallel bars. And all of this happening outdoors, unlike the modern Olympic Games. Yachting follows. This links back to the water theme of the prologue, but I couldn't perceive any such connection with gymnastics. Fencing is shown next and is shot by looking at the shadows of the fences on the wall, as if the event is presented by Indonesian shadow puppets. Boxing, equestrian and target shooting follow in rapid succession, with a bit of historical foreshadowing as the targets being shot at are in the shape of human beings. After the cross-country race, which is presented as a pastoral, we return for more gymnastics. This is but a prelude to the track events. 100 meter, long jump, shot put, high jump, hurdles, discus, pole vault, and javelin. Night shooting returns with a race on the track. I didn't hear the distance, and we only get a snippet of the race anyway. Hockey is followed by polo, and I'm sure the beer halls of Berlin had a chuck or two. Soccer is followed by the 100-kilometer bike race, which, for me, with its expressionistic photography, was the highlight of the film. We now pause for comedy. It's the equestrian events which highlight the spills rather than the thrills. Rowing leads into diving, which features underwater photography. We then get the swim events, breaststroke and crawl. The photography suggests Lenny Reifenstahl had viewed Jean Vigo's experimental short Taris, 1931. We'll return to the diving, but not the use of the cymbal crash in the music whenever the diver hits the water. I'll give a quick shout out to the cameraman for the sequence, whoever it was, who accompanies the diver through the descent. I don't think we get a shot like this again until Stanley Kubrick threw a camera out a window for a shot in A Clockwork Orange, 1971. For a finale, we get the closing ceremony and return to extensive modelled work. The Olympic flame dies. Spoiler alert, Hitler killed it until the end of World War II. 
Director of photography William Heimster was born on December 3, 1889 in Kranzfeld, Pomerania, and he died in 1938. Willie was a pioneer of German cinema. He began his career working under director Otto Rippert. He started in 1904 with Deutsche Bioscope making documentaries. In 1920, he became a pioneer in the German Expressionist movement by shooting The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. His career drifted during the 30s due to a debilitating illness that finally killed him. Director of photography Ernst Kunstmann was born on January 25, 1898 in Potsdam, Babelsberg, Germany, and he died in 1995. Ernst worked with special effects pioneer Eugen Schuften to develop the Schuften process. In 1926, the pair moved to Hollywood, taking the process with them. Ernst then moved to Britain and introduced the process in that country before returning to Germany. After World War II, he headed the special effects department at DEFA studio. Director of photography Gustav Guzzi Launchner was born on August 12, 1910 in Innsbruck, Austria, and he died in 2011. Guzzi was an alpine skier turned actor. As he was in Berlin for the occasion of the 1936 Olympic Games, Lenny Reifenstahl put a camera in his hands and told him to go out and shoot footage. Composer Herbert Wendt was born on September 15, 1894 in Seftenburg, Germany, and he died in 1965. Herbert studied music at the Sternsches Conservatorium in Berlin before enlisting at the start of World War I. He lost an eye in 1917 and spent two years convalescing, during which he perfected the art of composing chamber music. In 1920, he won a grant to study music under Franz Scherber. Herbert joined the Nazi party in 1931. Actor Jesse Owens was born on September 12, 1913, in Oakville, Alabama, USA, and he died in 1980. Hitler wanted the 1936 Olympic Games to be all about Aryan superiority. Jesse smashed that myth to pieces. The only thing that could have humiliated Adolf Hitler more was if Jesse had been Jewish as well as black. Jesse was the grandchild of a slave. The family upstakes in 1922 to move to Cleveland, Ohio to escape the slavery-inspired segregation of the southern USA. In 1933, Jesse enrolled at Ohio University, where Tin Soldiers and Nixon's coming, to become known as the Buckeye Bullet. He also had to live off campus, eat at blacks-only restaurants, and, when the athletes were competing off campus, stay at blacks-only hotels. With this handicap, Jesse set three world records in 1935, all in a single day. We now come to the 1936 Olympics. In 1935, NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, tried to make Jesse quit from the Olympics program. They got as far as getting him to declare, if there are minorities in Germany who are being discriminated against, the United States should withdraw from the 1936 Olympics. He was finally convinced to compete when Avery Brundage named those calling for a boycott un-American. 
for the record, Jesse could have replied, I was born in the USA. I was raised in the USA. I'm treated as a second-class citizen in my own country. How much more American do I have to be before I'm listened to? As another side note on this issue, I feel NAACP were in the wrong. Why is it the black man who has to make a sacrifice on principle? I know the political strategy was to point out the hypocrisy of the US and its close alliance to fascist ideology. My point is that this strategy hurts blacks and could spectacularly backfire. Jesse, I believe, saw this and ultimately refused to be a tool used in a losing fight. The US Olympic team arrived in Berlin, Germany. Shortly before the opening ceremony, Adi Dassler, founder of Adidas, persuaded Jesse to wear the company's shoes. This made him the first African-American to gain sponsorship. Jesse won four gold medals, causing Albert Speer to write, Hitler was highly annoyed by the series of triumphs by the marvellous coloured American Jesse Owens. People whose antecedents come from the jungle were primitive, Hitler said with a shrug. Their physique was stronger than those of civilized whites and hence could be excluded from future games. You have to laugh, don't you? Jesse returned home to reports of how Hitler had snubbed him at the awards ceremony. With remarkable restraint, he replied, Hitler didn't snub me. It was our president who snubbed me. The president didn't even send a telegram. Enough said. Next episode takes us into space in the year 1959. We also inspect mysterious rumblings in the bowels of the earth, which I suspect is just a Taco Tuesday gone wrong. For more movie mischievousness, don't forget to purchase the entire Movie Chronicles ebook series from an e-store near you. And don't forget to become a Patreon or Buzzsprout supporter. It drives the New Zealand IRS crazy. Oh, and brush up on your Russian, cause we're going into space first thing next week.